Good evening. Iran's parliament calls for the death penalty for protesters. Biden's victory lap. Trump says he's not to blame. Will Biden run again? And choice has a big night. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for Thursday, November 10th, 2022. A German member of the European Parliament, Hannah Newman, slammed Iranian lawmakers for demanding the execution of protesters today. She says 227 members of the Iranian Parliament's 290 members called on the judiciary to severely punish protesters and political prisoners to include inflicting the death penalty. Nevertheless, Newman adds the EU sanctions package against Iran falls short, naming only 31 individuals. Newman called on the European Union to send a very strong message. Colleagues, last Sunday, 227 out of the 290 members of the Iranian parliament called on the Iranian judiciary to severely punish protesters and political prisoners, including with executions. So people in the streets, people in prisons are beaten up, are raped, are killed, not by criminals, but by people who claim to be the government of this wonderful country. And colleagues, this needs a very strong signal from the European Union that we don't accept this, including targeted sanctions against exactly these 227 members of Parliament. And we cannot have this debate somewhere, dear colleagues, because the Council is right now preparing the sanctions package to be issued by the Foreign Affairs Council next Monday. And as of now, this package has only 31 individuals. So we have to have this debate this week and not two weeks ago or months ago. So now it was brought to our attention that apparently we cannot have this debate this week because neither the High Representative nor the Council would be able to be present. I mean, dear colleagues, imagine this in a national context. A parliament cannot have a crucial debate because the officials responsible are not showing up. Okay, so, dear you, colleagues, we should not accept this, and I really call on council or HIVP to make themselves available for this debate today or tomorrow. Thank you, Hannah. In a statement by the Iranian parliament Sunday, lawmakers called the protesters Mohareb, which literally means warrior in Arabic, but in Islamic law, or Sharia, it means enemy of God, carrying the death penalty. Iran has seen massive protests as a young woman died in the custody of the country's morality police. The young Kurdish woman was accused of wearing unsanctioned clothing. On Wednesday, during a televised meeting of top Russian military commanders, Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu agreed with advisors to withdraw troops from the strategic city of Kherson. Shoigu says the troops will take up defense positions on the Russian-controlled side of the Dnepr River. The defense minister called it a very difficult decision, but says the move will preserve the lives of Russian soldiers. Kherson was the first major city taken by Russian forces at the start of the war that Russia calls a special military operation in late February. Its fall marked another major consolidation of Russian forces. In related news, United States General Mark Milley said Wednesday more than 100,000 Russian military personnel have been killed or wounded in Ukraine, with Kyiv's forces likely suffering similar casualties. The figures provided by Milley are the most precise to date from the United States government more than eight months into the war, 
but could not be verified. Milley also said there's a chance for talks on ending the war and that military victory may not be possible for either Russia or Ukraine. Milley says there has to be a mutual recognition that military victory is probably, in the true sense of the word, maybe not achievable through military means, and therefore you need to turn to other means. He added, there's an opportunity here, a window of opportunity for negotiation. And on Friday, the news will have a special report from our correspondent Dan Kovalik, currently in Moscow. In national news, only weeks ago, Hurricane Ian washed away beaches and destroyed seawalls on the eastern Florida shore. The hurricane also caused massive destruction in southwestern Florida. Today, Tropical Storm Nicole swept through the state, causing two deaths and becoming the first November hurricane to make landfall in Florida in 37 years. It struck hardest near Daytona and Vero Beach, causing widespread damage affecting 24 hotels and condos northeast of Orlando. The rare November hurricane could dump as much as six inches of rain over the Blue Ridge Mountains by Friday, spreading into the northeast and New England by the weekend. And as votes in several key races are still being counted, the hopes of Democrats are rising that they may pull off control of the United States Senate. In Arizona and Nevada, the GOP's pathway to victory narrowed, although the races are still very close. Democratic Party odds in the Senate are better than in the House, where Republicans are closing in on the magic number of 218 seats necessary to hold sway. Meanwhile, in Georgia, the Senate race is heading to a runoff as both Republican Herschel Walker and Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock jumped into a month-long campaign in a pivotal state. Meanwhile, in Washington, President Joe Biden thanked Democratic Party volunteers as he took a victory lap. And folks, we lost fewer seats in the House of Representatives than any Democratic president's first elected midterm. At least 40 years. We had the best midterms for governors since 1986. And experts said we couldn't beat the odds, but we did beat the odds. There were a lot of concerns about whether democracy would meet the test. It did. It did. It did. Think of all we heard before this election about all the people being intimidated, all the people being threatened at the polls, all the people who worked the polls. You fulfilled your duty. You showed up. You did what you're supposed to do. And so did the American people. But despite the poor showing of candidates endorsed by former President Donald Trump, some Republicans did well. Ohio's J.D. Vance won the Deep Red States contest for the U.S. Senate. He gave a victory speech where he thanked supporters, but left out the name Donald Trump. Now the people of Ohio have given us a job. And what we need to do over the next couple of years, over the next six years, for the full, the full length of this Senate term, whoever's in the majority, whatever the president looks like, we have to, a very simple job to do. It's to go to work every single day and fight for the people of Ohio, fight for our workers. Fight for our families, fight for the people struggling with the opioid addiction problem, fight for the people, the single moms struggling to raise babies just like my mom raised me. We have got a great state and we have got a great country. Whether you voted for me or not, the thing that I promise to do is go to the United States Senate and fight every single day for the people of Ohio. Thanks to you, we get an opportunity to do just that. 
Ohio Senate Victor J.D. Vance. Meanwhile, New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman tweeted yesterday that Trump is furious this morning, particularly about Mehmet Oz, and is blaming everyone who advised him to back Oz, including his wife, describing it as not her best decision. That's according to people close to him. Trump denies he made the statement. Television doctor Oz went down to defeat to Democrat John Fetterman in Pennsylvania's closely watched Senate race. Trump backed 330 candidates in the midterm elections, but his candidates in critical races went down to defeat. The New York Post, a conservative tabloid, blared the headline today, Trumpy Dumpty, with a picture of Trump on a wall dressed as a nursery rhyme character. The Don, who couldn't build a wall, can all the GOP's men put the party back together again, it read. On Wednesday, the Post had a picture of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis holding his child, wife at his side with two more children, the headline, The Future. But in the run-up to the vote, Trump said if the GOP loses, he's not to blame. The results for Republicans, how much of that will be because of Donald Trump? Well, I think if they win, I should get all the credit. And if they lose, I should not be blamed at all, okay? But it'll probably be just the opposite. When they win, I think they're going to do very well. I'll probably be given very little credit, even though in many cases I told people to run. And they ran, and they turned out to be very good candidates. You know, they've turned out to be very good candidates. Uh, but usually what would happen is uh, when they do well, I won't be given any credit. And if they do badly, they will blame everything on me. So I'm prepared for anything, but we'll defend ourselves. Former President Trump. In related news, President Biden answered questions from the media about the election yesterday. He was asked if he'll run for re-election in 2024. The answer was not unequivocal. The fact that the Democratic Party outperformed anything anyone expected and did better than any uh, off-year presidency since John Kennedy is one that gives everybody like, whew, sigh of relief that the mega Republicans are not taking over the government again, etc. And uh, so uh, my judgment of running when I announce if I know, my intention is that I run again, but I'm a great respecter of fate, and uh, this is ultimately a family decision. I think everybody wants me to run, but they're going, we're going to have discussions about it. And I don't feel in any, any hurry one way or another to make that judgment with today, tomorrow, whenever, no, no matter what the, my predecessor does. My guess is, I hope Jill and I get a little time to actually sneak away for a week around between Christmas and Thanksgiving. <laughs> and my guess is it'd be early next year we make that judgment. But it, it's my plan to do it now. I mean, but, you know. But Biden did sound upbeat when asked about the brewing fight for control of the GOP between DeSantis and Trump. Who do you think would be the tougher competitor, Ron DeSantis or former President Trump? And how is that factoring into your decision? It'll be fun watching them take on each other. <laughs> All right. President Biden. Democrats are also facing divisions within their party. The co-founder of the advocacy group RootsAction.org is Jeff Cohen. The group has launched a new website, DontRunJoe.org. He says Democrats perform well despite Biden, not because of him, and it's time for the president to take a bow. The midterm showed that the Democratic Party is more popular than President Biden. Uh, Biden's approval rating, you know, 41, 42 percent. But when voters look at Democrats versus Republicans and they see a Republican Party 
that is, you know, climate denialist, reproductive choice denialist, doesn't even believe uh, in peaceful transfer of power after a fair election. The Democrats look pretty good. So uh, we've launched the don'trunjoe.org campaign uh, because we're trying to persuade Biden to announce soon uh, that he will not be the standard bearer of the Democratic Party. We believe if Biden is cleared away, he's sort of the logjam, it could open up the Democratic Party for new, more progressive, more dynamic leadership. To the average voter, Biden is seen as a weak leader. He can't even get things through his own party. So that that's the essence of the campaign. We, we're not endorsing or supporting any challenger to Biden. We believe step one is to convince Biden not to run again in 2024. Is this a movement that you're announcing? Is that an institutional movement or is it a grassroots in the sense? Is it the move on people or liberals in the Democratic wing or AOC or Pacifica Radio? Right now, this campaign has been initiated by RootsAction.org, the group I co-founded with Norman Solomon. And uh, we expect to be joined by other groups. It would look good. Isn't that what you're saying ageist? No, no, I'm not. I, I <laughs> I'm just, I'm just throwing that out. I'm saying it because he's an oh. old guy. I mean, you know, people say he seems infirm and lack of energy because he's old. We're not attacking his age or his energy. We're attacking his leadership skills. He can't even get things through his own party. His policy agenda is tepid. There are crises facing the working class and the middle class crises of education, of health care, of climate, of inflation. For months, Biden did not wage a battle when the prices were going up. When economists say the reason we have inflated prices, it's not so much the labor market, it's not so much supply chain, it's because corporations are gouging the public. Did you sense anything in anything he said yesterday? He gave a long press conference. It didn't seem to be considering not running at all. I watched the whole news conference. I've monitored every comment Biden's ever made. I believe he is on the fence. He's as likely not to run as to run. If he does not run, that opens up the field. It galvanizes young voters. You know, there was a New York Times poll recently in July that found most Democrats don't want him to run again, and 90% of Democrats under the age of 30. Well, that's the future of the Democratic Party. The famous Gen Z. And by the way, they came out and voted. When it's a battle between Democrats and Republicans, the extremism of the Republicans will undermine them, and the Democrats will win. The Democratic Party is more popular than its leader, President Biden. He is, in some ways, an anchor on the Democratic Party, holding it down. Jeff Cohen is co-founder of the advocacy group RootsAction.org. And you're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. You can find the news at pauldurienzo.com. And Montana became the fifth state Thursday to give pro-choice supporters a win. Voters in the Big Sky State rejected a ballot measure that would have forced medical workers to try and save an aborted fetus. Michigan, California, and Vermont voted to enshrine abortion rights in their state constitutions. Kentucky voters rejected an anti-abortion measure by a wide margin. In August, voters in Kansas also turned back an attempt to prohibit abortions in the Sunflower State. 
and liberal icon Jane Fonda celebrated her 85th birthday in Atlanta on Thursday. She also released a video saying the work of the Georgia-based nonprofit organization she founded to prevent teenage pregnancies has become far more important in the months since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Boys are so vulnerable right now. They're kind of being left behind and they kind of get the wrong message, especially these days. We want to put a lot of emphasis on, on, on reaching boys and teaching them what it means to be a man. It doesn't mean not having feelings, not showing emotions, not caring, knocking up your partner and stuff like that. The things that they're born with that they sometimes lose contact with as they begin to grow up. I'm, I'm very, very eager to introduce that more strongly in the work that we do. The activist and Oscar winner has been an outspoken critic of the court's decision, previously calling it unconscionable. She founded the Georgia Campaign for Adolescent Pregnancy Prevention in 1995 when she lived in Atlanta and when Georgia had the highest teenage birth rate in the United States. Despite Tuesday's wins, women's health is under intense attack in areas in the South and Midwest where abortion has been banned. The director of operations of West Alabama's Women's Center in Tuscaloosa is Robin Marty, a regular contributor to the news. She says the negative health effects on women of overturning Roe is becoming evident. State referendums almost always pass when it comes to abortion rights. The state of Mississippi, a lot of people have forgotten, actually tried to ban abortion completely via referendum in 2011, and that lost by 63 to 37, I believe. Um, Colorado tried to pass personhood multiple times, I believe five times, and every time that lost. Um, North Dakota tried to do personhood and a complete total abortion ban, I believe 2008, and that lost. Abortion bans lose. And the fact that Democrats have not figured out yet that this is a winning issue for them and something they should all be embracing is why we can't seem to nail down the rest of these wins. What is personhood? So personhood is the idea that life begins at the moment of fertilization. So the moment that a sperm meets an egg, even before it makes it to implant, before there's any zygote, blastocyst, embryo, from the moment that sperm meets egg, that is considered a full and unique life that has to be protected under all costs. And that inherently is where anti-abortion activists are trying to push when they do abortion bans, is the idea of life being protected from the moment of conception. That's something that we actually have out here in Alabama. Alabama is the only state that has ever managed to pass and, and get the uh, majority to vote in favor of the idea of abortion being completely banned, birth control being banned, that there should be um, government intervention to make sure that from the moment conception happens, a person is forced to carry to term. We passed that in 2008 in something known as Amendment 2. And that is one of the reasons why, even though you are seeing a lot of states across the nation starting to vote for these less restrictions and sort of moving away from the very dark total ban that came out right after Dobbs, Alabama is still 100%, no exceptions, no reprieve when it comes to getting an abortion because we are the only ones who have a personhood amendment. They haven't been trying to prevent women from leaving the state to get an abortion in, in liberal Tennessee or? Yeah, at this moment, Tennessee does actually have a total abortion ban. So the closest place that somebody in Alabama can go to is either into the middle of Florida or up 
to South Carolina in order to get an abortion. We have been told, because I do work at what was the largest abortion provider in Alabama, we have been told that providing a person with any sort of financial support, physical support, or even information is considered a criminal conspiracy and that we could be charged should we help somebody get an abortion outside of the state, even if they go do that in a state where abortion is legal. Um, Obviously, this is something that we are going to have to start pushing back against and testing because we do still live in the United States where allegedly information is something that we can share and is a constitutional right. But at this point, we have been informed that we should not be providing information about legal clinics. We should not um, be providing funding for people to leave the state. All of that could come back and get us arrested. What do the women of Alabama who need an abortion do? And what happens Um, to them? The reality is these were people who found it very difficult to be able to get to a clinic in their own state. Um, Being unable to pull together the resources to leave a state, to be able to find somebody who can watch their children, to be able to take time off of work, to get the money to afford an abortion now that there is no longer an abortion fund in the state. These are all things that have just become too much for them. And the reality is my clinic's still open and operating, but we have people who are coming in, confirming their pregnancies, asking for help if they're having a problem with their pregnancy, but they're resigned. They see this as just another thing that the government has done to them in a series of ways that the government has always oppressed them, has always taken away their rights, and they're resigned to give birth. And I know that for those who do successfully do that, and the reality is many of them won't because these are unhealthy pregnancies, those that do end up giving birth, we're going to see a huge surge probably in about five months. Robin Marty is Director of Operations of West Alabama's Women's Center in Tuscaloosa. Although a lot of work remains to protect women from the right-wing anti-abortion movement, the abortion access correspondent for The Nation magazine, Amy Littlefield, who has been crisscrossing the country covering the grassroots movement to protect abortion access, says pollsters who claim the economy and choice were separate and opposing issues had it wrong. Abortion is as much an economic issue as inflation. The economy and abortion are not separate issues. So quite frankly, young people and women, two incredibly critical um, voting blocks, were dramatically underestimated in all the polls and projections of this election. When I talk to people who were organizing around the issue of abortion, they're not surprised by these results because they saw the amount of momentum and the amount of energy that was being generated, especially by the ballot initiatives aimed at protecting or restoring abortion rights in states like Kentucky and Michigan, Vermont and California um, and even Montana. What One big difference to me anyway is <clears throat> that um, uh, in economic issues, Republicans and Democrats often switch sides. I mean, remember, I remember Richard Nixon having wage and price controls. Abortion is terribly ideological. And how did that play into this? Abortion is ideological because Republicans have worked extremely hard to frame it that way, right? And the Christian right has worked very hard to frame it that way. But I think when you talk to people, and I've been shadowing canvassers door to door from Kansas to Vermont this election cycle, to hear how everyday people think about the issue of abortion. And quite often, the way that they think about it comes from their personal experience. I heard from a Republican voter in Kansas who had was going through fertility treatments. And so that's how she was thinking about the issue. Someone I talked to in Vermont who had had an experience with having to terminate a, a wanted pregnancy. That's how she was thinking about the issue. So I think very often 
people's experiences are not ideological at all. They have to do with someone they know who's had an abortion or with a moment in their lives when, you know, they couldn't afford a child, even though they wanted one down the line. Um, and so I think, you know, given the vast percentage of, of people who have had abortions um, as reproductive justice advocates like Renee Bracey Sherman like to say, everyone loves someone who's had an abortion. I think we're seeing um, what happens when the enormous pro-choice majority that exists in this country that transcends partisan lines gets mobilized and gets to the polls and votes. Still, you have Alabama where, you know, the only state, but one setting an example for other right-wing movements across the country to, you know, make it a murder, you know, making a woman guilty of murder. Is it this going to be a two-tiered country where there's going to be uh, like in the old days when alcohol was first legalized in half the states or marijuana where half the states is legal and half the states is not. Even before Roe v. Wade fell, there were states that had restricted abortion so severely that it was unaffordable or inaccessible because of the distances that had to be traveled or the mountains that had to be moved in order to get there. And now it's completely stark. I mean, there are states out there with total abortion bans where abortion is just not accessible. And when you look at the map, you're talking about regions of the country, right, in the south and Midwest, where you're having to drive across or fly across um, large sections of the country in order to get to a clinic, if, if that's how you choose to have, have your care, or, you know, self-manage and order pills online if you, if you don't. And so, um, so yes, I think we already are in a two-tiered situation. I mean, let's remember Kentucky, which is one of the most anti-abortion states in the country, according to polls, right, rejected an anti-abortion initiative, 52%, resounding, you know, no there on, on abortion restrictions. And yet the state has an abortion ban currently in place. You cannot access a legal abortion in Kentucky in most cases. So, um, so we have to remember that abortion um, policies are determined by state legislatures um, which are often gerrymandered. Um, and, you know, it's not the same thing as what the will of the voters and the will of the majority in even red states like Kentucky and Kansas might decide. So we're seeing this growing gap, which is, of course, not restricted to the issue of, of abortion. We really saw an uprising in this election, especially around the ballot initiatives from people who hadn't participated in politics and political campaigns before. We're only beginning to see the sort of true political power of that mobilized pro-choice majority. And it shows you how the far right is very anti-democratic. They've always known they can't win in, you know, ballot initiatives, for example. And that's why the restriction of democracy and the restriction of abortion rights are integrally tied. They go hand in hand. And it is in these gerrymandered and undemocratic states that have suppressed the vote and have gerrymandered Republican control into their legislatures, where we often see these most draconian abortion restrictions and deeply unpopular economic policies, too. Amy Littlefield is abortion access correspondent for The Nation magazine. And another abortion rights proponent, New York Governor Kathy Hochul, became the first woman elected governor of the state despite a tougher-than-expected fight against GOP Trump supporter Representative Lee Zeldin. Tonight, you made your voices heard loud and clear. And, and, you made me the first woman ever elected to be the governor of the state of New York. The lessons of tonight's victory are that given the choice, New Yorkers refuse to go backwards on our long march toward progress. And we embrace the torch that's been passed to us from all those who fought the good fight years before we came here. 
And in so doing, we commit that we'll make that torch glow even brighter before we pass it on to the next generation. We've achieved so much in just one year. Now I ask all of New Yorkers to join me as we act with boldness and urgency and accomplish even more for the next four years. Zeldin raked in big marches upstate and on Long Island, but it wasn't enough to top Democratic voters in urban areas like New York City and Buffalo. Still, the GOP won back several seats in the state legislature. Pundits blamed inflation and high crime and Hochul's poor response for Republican advances. And finally, Wall Street investors reacted to a report of moderating inflation today, pushing stocks up nearly 1,200 points. Treasury bonds and the dollar plunged. Bitcoin rebounded too, and U.S. crude oil prices also rose. Apple gained 9% after prices fell steeply in recent days, as did Microsoft and Tesla. And that's some of the news for Thursday, November 10th, 2022. The news was written and produced by this reporter. You can find the news at pauldirienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.